I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. doesn't make any sense. So you think Terry Lee's a fake, but you believe in lizard people? Of course I believe in lizard people. Then why is it so hard to believe that they're keeping kids in a basement? Look, you came marching into a public forum tonight proposing open war against a technologically superior race of ancient reptilian humanoids. Am I right? We're already at war. Well, we can't just go down to Austin and waltz into the lizard stronghold demanding to see the children in the basement. Lizard Illuminati. Toots Pizza out of Austin, Texas. No one's looking into it. No FBI, no ATF, no one. The government's hiding something. Hey, I think you should leave your camera behind. It looks suspicious. If we even live to see this footage, it'll be bigger than you or me. All right. But I'll have to prove the final cut before it's released to theaters. What's the uh... problem? <laughs> Well, I bet you automatically think I'm a racist or something. I don't know, are you? Tell me about the militia. Get back! I need someone like you to help me with the tactical side. If something does go wrong in there, you're gonna have to be the one that evacuates. You got the footage. A pizza delivery service has become the scene of a deadly shootout. We've been told that at least three employees from Toots Pizza And what y'all think it is, I ain't a white nationalist. Duncan? I ain't a killer. These are the times we're living in, people. And if you're not scared, then you're asleep. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. What you just heard was the audio from the official trailer for the Pizzagate Massacre. An independent, Texas-based road movie that combines elements of westerns and horror films to serve up a stunningly dark satire of our paranoid zeitgeist. It follows young reporter Karen and a militiaman by the name of Duncan who team up to find out if a Texas pizzeria is ground zero for a child abuse conspiracy as claimed by local Alex Jones-style media personality, Terry Lee. Joining us to discuss the film is its director, John M. Valley, who also, I should add, plays a significant role in the film as Duncan's unhinged rival, Philip. The conversation you're about to hear lasted for over two hours. And as such, I want to get straight to it with John M. Valley. But first, let me say that this movie is a tour de force and it comes with some unexpected surprises. I highly recommend giving it a watch. It is extremely apropos 
in regards to our current socio-political moment. And just to whet your appetite, we'll be discussing a number of issues, including the threats John received from Pizzagate believers before the film was even released. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. And now onto the conversation with John M. Valley, the filmmaker behind the Pizzagate Massacre. Welcome to Parallax Views, John M. Valley, the filmmaker behind a rather interesting movie, uh, a movie that I think will hit people with uh, a sort of unexpected twist, an unexpected take, I would say, in some ways on things like QAnon and Pizzagate. The movie is called The Pizzagate Massacre, although I think uh, it's also formally known as Duncan. How are you doing today, John Valley? Uh, I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. Um, yeah, it was it was formerly known as Duncan at one point until uh, we made a little uh, upgrade. <laughs> I guess I, I want to get back to that, but first, uh, just for my listeners, obviously this movie is playing off uh, the whole Pizzagate phenomena uh, that was happening um, a few years ago that I, I think is sort of turned into QAnon at this point, right? So for people that don't recall uh, or have been living under a rock, um, there was a big conspiracy theory about this place called Comet Ping Pong. Uh, a pizza shop in Washington, D.C., and the big conspiracy theory was that the Democratic deep state um, were sacrificing children, I guess, there. Uh, very bizarre stuff. It was all Hillary Clinton, and they were hiding the children in the basement, uh, the, the, the Clinton campaign, and uh, this culminated in uh, someone attempting to find said basement and bringing a gun into Comet Ping Pong. Uh, now, Pizzagate plays off of that, but there's a little bit more of a story to Pizzagate. Um, it has its own plot, so to speak. So if you could, what is the basic plot outline of Pizzagate without giving too much away? Yeah, so like you said, it's it's uh, a movie that's loosely inspired by this uh, conspiracy theory and this uh, specific event of Pizzagate, the shooting that happened in 2016. But our movie takes a very fictionalized uh, look at that. It's it's uh, definitely a work of fiction where we follow two conspiracy theorists uh, on a road trip from Waco to Austin as they try to uncover the truth behind rumors of uh, said pizza place. Uh, harboring these uh, uh, children um, for sex trafficking and, and satanic rituals. Um, and it's all being ran by what they believe to be the lizard people um, who are masquerading as these political uh, operatives on, in the uh, Democratic Party. Um, so it's kind of this uh, dark satire that's funny until it's not and kind of plays with a huge uh, menagerie of conspiracy theories and jumbles them all together uh, into this kind of uh, action film comedy, uh, slightly tinged with horror elements, um, but mostly like a political satire. So I got to ask, what gave you the idea to make a movie 
that uses the Pizzagate sort of conspiracy culture as its launching point, because I, I could see a lot of people, uh, probably film festivals being uh, like, oh, this this seems like exploitation, you know, this isn't our type of thing. Uh, so what, what led you to sort of do it? Because I think it was a bold move on your part. Yeah, well, you're right on the money with festivals not being cool at this movie. We had a pretty miserable run through the festival circuit, got turned down left and right. Um, but the the original inspiration is kind of twofold. I mean, one was when Pizzagate happened. I remember that really sticking out to me and seeing uh, how much people just made a joke out of it, because it is funny on its surface. When you tell people those details, it's, it's laughably uh, um, stupid. However, it did result in a man thinking that it was serious, uh, an Alex Jones listener, and he took it upon himself to become this vigilante that was going to go release these children from this basement. And I remember when it happened, uh, being pretty concerned that it was going to get worse. And I was upset that why is it that Americans have to wait for there to be bodies everywhere before we take something seriously? And so what I didn't realize then is that I was I was seeing what resulted on January 6th uh, and beyond. And so that was kind of the initial inspiration. I was just really moved by this character because A, what could drive somebody to do something so foolish? And B, I had an immense degree of empathy for them. Um, I come from a rural part uh, place in Iowa. And uh, as I'll say later, the, uh, the lead actor of the movie comes from a rural community in Texas. And so Although I definitely ascribe to, you know, leftist politics and progressive politics, I certainly have a, a pretty good degree of empathy for people on the right. I, I don't see them as the deplorables. I see them as our neighbors, as our brothers, our sisters, our parents. And I think the last thing we should do is try to cut them out. Um, however, that said, we do need to see this as a mass delusion that is problematic in many ways. Um, so I was inspired by that character. And, and that and the, that that decision that somebody would make, but it wasn't until years later I was on set for another feature that I was acting in where I met the lead actor Tynus So, and uh, just being completely seduced by his comedy and his ability to entertain and just welcome everybody. He's he's an incredible performer, um, and, and really couldn't be anything further than what he portrays in the movie, uh, which is a testament to his acting ability. Um, but he and I had started talking about conspiracy theories just because it was sort of the discussion of the day. I mean, every day in the Trump administration, everybody was talking about it. It was on our minds. And it really was a light switch moment where I saw him as a performer. I saw his understanding and his empathy for these people who are falling down the rabbit hole. And uh, it just, you know, came together like that in my head. And Basically, part of the, my process and what happened in this instance is I'll usually have two or three scripts going at once that I'm trying to develop and one of them's not working, but some parts of the other one are working and you just kind of slowly move the pieces forward and then something will happen. And in this case, meeting Tynus, where all of those ideas kind of come together as one and you kind of cannibalize them into one project. And so uh, in the spring of 2018, I was able to write this script like hyper fast just because it was all there. I had the bones already worked out. Um, I just needed the character. And I found the character in Tynus, wrote the character for him, 
And then we spent the next four months getting everything together and shot it uh, that fall. And this is the character of Duncan. Uh, could you describe uh, how this character came to be? Because I, I was very interested in this character, not just because uh, there's a connection uh, to Waco and David Koresh, but I, I was interested more generally in the way you portrayed um, there's a militia in the movie. Um, and yeah. I, I don't think that's spoiling anything, but it's yeah. really interesting to me. I assume that you've had experience or have known people uh, that were involved with militias because I was I was actually taken aback uh, at the fact that you, you portray the militia as not being all just crazy, violent, um, you know, white nationalists. There's that element within it, but there's also people that just sort of treat it as a gun club. And I, I've also seen that to be the case. Now, I'm not saying that militias aren't, you know, uh, a right-wing phenomena and that they can't be dangerous and violent, but I, I think people uh, aren't as nuanced about it as the movie is. So I was curious how you uh, came about with with that character and how you portrayed the militia in the movie. Yeah, I mean, that was an opportunity for me thematically to uh, express the diversity of of people who we would otherwise cast aside as right-wing nuts. Um, I wanted to show like a nice spectrum of those who might've been vets who uh, maybe they're hunters and maybe they uh, are, are gun enthusiasts and uh, who, you know, ha have a, uh, albeit misplaced sometimes love for nationalism and patriotism uh, from point of positive uh, positivity. And it's not as though I, I've never like been in a militia or I've never really like, I probably know people who are part of a militia, but I just, but I don't know it because oftentimes they are sort of kept under the radar. Um, but those people tend to be uh, lots of people I grew up with people in my family and in my community, um, you know, uh, farmers, blue collar workers, hunters, uh, military vets, uh, police officers, and, and, uh, you know, that, that community of people. And the idea of the militia is good in theory, right? In, in, in terms of uh, the, as far as the argument is concerned, the idea is that it's supposed to be functional. The idea is that it's supposed to be in service to the protection and the proliferation of our uh, community and our nation. Uh, but far too often, it does kind of turn into a place, a breeding ground for uh, extremism, uh, oftentimes white supremacy. And a lot of times it does attract people that have actually no vested interest in uh, service, but more so uh, a place for them to define some kind of misinformed version of their identity. Um, you know, the without getting too in the weeds, but like, you know, the movie takes this position of being very obviously a movie. It kind of wants to feel like a movie. It wants to feel like a, almost like a neo-Western. And that is kind of this idea that I was playing with that I think a lot of these people view themselves to be a character in their own movie. Um, they see themselves in action films and they see themselves as the hero because the alternative is they're not a hero and they are insignificant. And they're just like the rest of us kind of hurtling through space through this kind of chaotic period of our lives. Um, there, there are people that desperately seek uh, identity and are uh, oppressed and ostracized and cornered, and they will then find themselves in these communities. And it's just nobody wants to atone to that uh, potential for toxicity. 
And so in this militia that is portrayed in the movie, you do see the full spectrum, right? Like the character that I play, uh, Philip, uh, aka Sidethorn, is pretty nasty. He's very, he's very singular uh, in his uh, character arc. Whereas the almost like the Obi-Wan Kenobi character, the Hollis character is kind of more uh, th- this older, wiser leader of the militia who, who kind of soft-spoken and kind and uh, seeking peace. Uh, and then you have Duncan, the lead character, who's kind of in the middle of that spectrum, somebody who's straddling that uh, sense of uh, direction for their identity. And um, the movie um, kind of tracks that evolution of somebody who, who goes too far uh, and realizes they've gone too far too late. So I'm glad you brought up the Western aspect because while watching this movie, uh, I didn't necessarily think Western immediately, but I thought, I mean, it's definitely a road movie, right? And uh, Mm -hmm. there's a a lot going on there that I want to unpack, but Duncan is the one character. And then you have a journalist. Uh, How did the journalist character come about? And uh, how did the casting decision come about? um, You know, I I think it was interesting to have a... um, African-American, a, a black actress uh, playing a character that is working for uh, the sort of antagonist, Ch- Cheryl Lee, who is the sort of Alex Jones stand-in that's causing mm-hmm. all this panic around uh, the pizza shop in Austin. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this is not a colorblind script. Uh, this is very much about race and, and gender in many ways. Uh, and so the thing that I was trying to kind of speak to was that close relationship between uh, white supremacy and uh, right-wing politics and right-wing propaganda and how one begets the other. And so this character of Karen is sort of uh, functionally our conduit into the movie, but is also um, a major uh, pillar of the theme of the movie and and to show sort of the uh, inherent toxicity of this type of lifestyle um, and, and kind of how it just reflects today and how that can happen. Because when you do start to look past the generalizations and stereotypes of race, you, you do find that like there are plenty of Black people that uh, uh, voted for Trump. There are many, plenty of Black people that worked for Alex Jones. Uh, um, she kind of has this reflection of a Candace Owens type. And the reasoning behind that is, you know, a, another kind of aspect of the movie is this sort of condemnation or indictment of uh, uh, propagandist, uh, me- like kind of like media capitalists and showing how she is wrestling with this, uh, her own identity and what she's willing to sacrifice uh, moralistically f- for money, uh, despite um, the way that uh, African Americans are uh, targeted and marginalized by the right wing, you know, we start to see the power of money infiltrating into her psyche, and that's kind of a, a, a big theme and aspect of the movie. Is this, you know, h- how much of what we are doing is done altruistically versus uh, for financial uh, gains? So that's another interesting aspect of the movie for me because I I almost felt like there was an ambiguity with both Karen and Duncan where I'm not sure they actually, at the start of it, 
or, or even going through on their journey to this pizza shop, I don't get the impression that they necessarily believe everything Cheryl Lee is saying. I mean, Duncan even, you know, spoiler alert, uh, says that at one point to Karen. He mm-hmm. says, it's all bullshit, you know? So could you talk about that? Is that ambiguity intentional? Yeah, because I think it's, uh, again, just trying to like speak to the themes of, of, of what, what, what it's trying to do is that there is this constant revision of the conspiracy uh, conspiracy theory. I mean, even to this day, I have people uh, condemning me or you know attacking me saying lizard people weren't part of Pizzagate. And that is uh, demonstrably false. They absolutely were. And uh, it, a lot of it has been scrubbed because Alex Jones had to sort of backtrack and take a lot of that stuff off. And now in 2021, the notion of lizard people seems silly to the conspiracy theory logic and, and, and the, the narrative. It, it doesn't really hold water anymore. And we even see that with like Terry Lee's character. She's changing her opinion on on the the conspiracy theory itself just to fit the moment because ultimately i don't think they really care about the actual narrative i don't think these people actually believe in what it is that they're doing because they can't there's no substance there there's no meat on the bone so what they think they're believing is complete uh fantasy and so you see that often when you get into these uh discussions with uh, right-wing and conspiratorial thinking people is how quickly they will abandon aspects of their own narrative to fit the uh, this perception of a competition in the conversation that you're having with them in the moment. They, they will abandon uh, certain aspects because it doesn't hold water in that moment. Um, I had a close family member who reached out to me while we were making the movie to sort of all but cut me out of his life because of the, because uh, he believed in Pizzagate, and he he believed that, you know, I was barking up the wrong tree, and that I was I was gonna, uh, you know, he said, you'll see very soon, you're gonna see this is all true, and then I came at him with like, well, so you, so you believe that there are uh, a child sex trafficking ring in the United States ran by the Democratic Party? You believe that Hillary Clinton is uh, operating this, and. He's like, yeah, oh, there's, it's, it's a lot more than that. There, there's hundreds of politicians that are part of this. And I said, and you believe that lizard people are, are like behind this and that they are like actually underneath the skin of these politicians. And he laughed and he said, well, of course not. Of course, lizard people aren't real, you know? And, but then, but then I said, but that is part of the narrative. That is, that is just as much part uh, of this uh, unseen evidence that folks like Alex Jones will uh, uh, vomit out, you know. So it just goes to show that the, the narrative is all spongy, it's all cartoonish, and it can be taken in and out willy nilly, um, which then just proves the point. It affirms that this this thing has no legs, and the, and it's it's uh, incredibly shallow. So it's interesting with the whole lizard people thing. You know, in a way, I think you've. Uh how do I put this? You've reclaimed uh, where the sort of lizard people trope originally came from, because uh, the, the conspiracy theorist who popularized it was David Icke. But David Icke got it from a TV series called uh, V. Well, it was, mm-hmm. it was a miniseries first, but then uh, became a TV series and there was a sequel and all that. And he also took it from uh, the movie They Live. And it's mm-hmm. interesting to me because in both those movies, 
you sort of, if you're watching it, understand that the lizard people are a metaphor for something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of They Live, I would say there's sort of a commentary on capitalism going on. Um, in V, it, it's a very obvious parable about the dangers of fascism. And I think in the Pizzagate massacre, especially with the closing, which I, we're not going to spoil, but I think you do sort of look at this idea of lizard people as a metaphor, just not in the way that the sort of conspiratorial right sees it. Does, am, am I making sense there? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and like that's why conspiracy theories are in many parts fun. And, and while they're, why they're kind of uh, useful stories to talk about in the context of, of this, because it, they are metaphors. They do just kind of represent something else when you distill them down to their elemental form. Yeah. Lizard people basically just represents uh, an unseen elite force of, of uh, people who uh, are kind of singular and um, inhuman and unempathetic uh, beings that are that are making uh, consequential decisions, right? That metaphorically, that's sort of the, the whole lizard brain notion is when you shut off your humanity and you just become very binary with your decision making. It's cold. It's it's calculated. It's predatory. Uh, it's predatory. Um, so yes, the movie does sort of reclaim that, like you said, in a, in a way that it, it kind of points out, like you know, like. It, it it asks the question like who are the lizard people and like what what do they represent in this world and like hopefully you can walk away saying that like you know oh there's lizard people all over the place you know they they, they there's there's a, a lizard person in us you know um and and so it's it's a metaphor but the problem is then that people begin to repeat that over and over again in their heads and they start to think that it is real and if you say that enough you will start to believe it our brain is wired to look for patterns and our brain is wired to collect those patterns distill them down into basic like subconscious decision making and so the more you like pepper that into your actual politics and your actual uh daily life the more it starts to diffuse reality and the more it starts to kind of make it all mixed together so that when, oh, I don't know, somebody comes out and says, the election was stolen from us. You know, if you're already quasi-believing in lizard people for decades, if, if you're a David Icke follower, then the notion that a Democratic Party could steal uh, an election that by all accounts was the cleanest election we've ever had in U.S. history. It doesn't seem that wild. It's not that crazy. And if you have a really strong actor behind it, in the case of Donald Trump, then that uh, puts emotional relevancy and context to it. And so you, you've, you've saturated your mind with this uh, uh, false and, and crazy fantasy. So then when they do the, the really craven stuff, it doesn't seem that craven to you. Um, you know, there's a notion of the God hole that we we're we're a civilization that has been saturated with this notion of a man who can walk on water and fly and, and resurrect himself from the dead. It's kind of crazy from a practical point of view. And the more you sort of uh, imprint that on our brains over generations, uh, the more the brain is susceptible to receive uh, other narratives like that 
as as the the god hole is being kind of vacated right now you know there, there's a big movement of um uh awareness that maybe uh there aren't people that lived for 800 years there aren't people that you know could can uh come back from the dead and and all that stuff but when you have generations of people who have been had their brain saturated that way it's not that crazy to think that we can be susceptible to these what seem to be comic book stupid kind of conspiracy theories uh we're, we're much simpler than i think we give ourselves credit for and there's a pretty profound lack of humility about that and and we think that no there's no way i could believe in those types of fantasies but we do we do it every day you know money you could argue that money is a is a fantasy it's not real you know but we tell ourselves that story it's the greatest story ever told right you know so, that, that this paper is worth something so i want to get into the sort of media criticism aspect of this movie um, and I, I want to get into an idea that I, I sort of had while watching it. I know, uh, I'm sure there are, there are people who believe in Pizzagate that uh, see the title and think, uh, this is an anti-conspiracy movie. In a way, I think it's saying there is a conspiracy. It's just not the one that the Pizzagate believers believe in. But I, I'll come back to yep. that later, uh, and I'll explain what I mean by that. First, I want to get into... Uh, how long have you been in Texas? Because I'm assuming uh, you've been familiar with Alex Jones for a while, or at least peripherally aware of him. I've been aware of him for years, and it's been mm -hmm. interesting seeing his evolution since the years of uh, George W. Bush. And then, I mean, he was even around, his first big thing was Waco, actually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and that's kind of where... Uh, in terms of the timeline of the script, you know, when I was uh, researching Alex Jones, that's sort of how the whole Waco element and the whole like Branch Davidian element of the movie kind of got uh, inserted in. But yeah, I've been in Texas for about 13 years. Um, I'm from Iowa originally. Um, and I've been aware of Alex Jones for a long time, just because I've, I've always been sort of fascinated by uh, these fringe figures and, and fringe media and conspiracies and um, real, real quick, I was just going to yeah. say, I, I, I think for a while, I think he was sort of a folk hero for some people in of course. Texas, not not even people that agreed with his politics. Uh, but I think that, you know, there's this whole thing, keep Austin weird, you mm -hmm. know, that, that whole little movement and slogan. And I think, you know, people sort of uh, lifted him up as an example of, you know, oh, keep keep Texas weird, keep Austin weird. And, you know, 100%. I think now that's changed a lot, but go on. Oh yeah, and and you can you can even see that insofar as you know one of Austin's best uh, exports uh, is Richard Linklater, and Alex Jones shows up in a number of Richard Linklater movies, but I guarantee you he will not show up in any more of them because in, I think I think he was in Waking Life and then uh, A Scanner Darkly, yeah, correct, yeah, and even something like Slacker, it's when you go back and watch that, it, it's got conspiratorial thinking all over it, you know. Because uh, Texas is a very weird place that has many uh, examples and sort of um, corruption issues that do make you question the government and make you question uh, authority and our leaders. Um, and that's where conspiracy theories are uh, interesting. That's where they are true because they are truly theoretical, you know, and so they, they inspire uh, creative thinking outside of the box. Um, but yeah, I mean... In the same way that Alex Jones was funny until he wasn't, it's the same thing with Donald Trump and uh, all of these, all of these kind of right wing movements that they're, they're comedic. You know, everybody was so frightened last year 
basically watching the uh, man what what was like a, a living idiocracy, you know. And that is a movie from almost twenty years ago. It's that's comedic and it's funny, but it's very prescient. And you know, our inability to discern that before it gets too late and too bad is is really disappointing. You know, and that that was my that's what angered me so much about Pizzagate was that this inability to see that this gets a lot worse if we don't nip this in the butt. Like this isn't fucking around. You know, these are, it is funny and it's, it's silly and I'm glad nobody died. But if 13 bodies have been piled up at the end of that day, we would have been calling it the Pizzagate massacre. We would have been taking it seriously and we would have seen what was coming down, uh, down the road in, in just, but a few years, you know, if, if you, if you were to see, if you're able to draw a line between, something like Pizzagate in January 6th or what's you know, I, I in our future. I would even say you could apply this to Alex Jones in some ways himself, because I, of course. I'm not going to lie when, when he was uh, doing his show uh, in the George W. Bush years, there were times where I would be like, yeah, I, I agree with him about, you know, uh, Guantanamo Bay is bad and all, all this other stuff. I mean, he yep. said some things that I think liberals and leftists uh, could agree with during those Bush years. But he has turned into almost a completely different beast now, or maybe that was always there, uh, but we didn't see it then. Yeah, because he's finding his audience, you know, and uh, which then goes to well, say- Well, he's running like, a business. As much as he's saying exactly. it's an info war, it's a war on your mind, you know, it's all about seeking truth. It's a business at the end of the day. Absolutely. And I, and I think if the left would have taken him up more, he would have been some- uh, a thought leader on the left, you know, and, and not that I can say that I, I can't really think of anybody on the left who is the equivalent of Alex Jones, but I think it really is a matter of uh, he he saw an opportunity and he took it um, despite the uh, immoral implications behind it. And he, he took it for money because even though he backtracked on Pizzagate and he apologized for it, uh, he still made out handsomely financially. Now, fortunately, He's uh, being very quickly dethroned and taken down, um, uh, mostly due to the uh, Sandy Hook, you know, uh, crisis actors and the Sandy Hook, you know, calling it a hoax and uh, basically sicking his army on uh, these, you know, grieving families. Um, so that's that is nice to see him get his comeuppance, um, the cost of free speech, as it were. Uh but, you know, at the time, he, he was rewarded handsomely for for what he did with Pizzagate and his hand in, uh, you know, putting forth the most fascistic president we've had uh, in quite a time. How did the character evolve this this character? Of, am I getting the name of the character right? Was it Cheryl Lee's the name of the character, right? Oh, no, uh, Terry Lee. Terry Lee. OK, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was trying right. to pull up, listen, I was trying to pull up the IMDB page and I keep getting a 404 error. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. Else they, told me that today. It's being suppressed uh, by the Illuminati, the, the, the <laughs> Pizzagate Massacre movie. But uh, so Terry Lee, how does this character come about and how do you get Lee Eddy involved? Because she gives a tour de force uh, in her role. And it's, it's a role that I, I think becomes, it looms throughout the movie in the same way mm -hmm. that Pizza Shop looms throughout the movie the pizza shop is almost like a character itself right uh, but yep. she really in that third act gives a tour de force so how did that all come about 
Yeah, I, you know, she's a local actor and uh, successful at that. And she's very uh, um, beloved in the community. And I've watched her uh, performing over the years. I've always really looked up to her. I, I, she's, you know, one of my favorite actors on the planet. And, uh, you know, when we came to make this movie, she, she's she's a bit above my weight class. And I really look up to her. And I kind of took a big swing and asked her to be a part of it. And she was originally cast as one of the uh, anchors on the uh, the news show, like like uh, one of the other characters in the movie. And it was just merely a practicality thing where, I, you know, I wasn't going to be able to pay people very much. And I didn't want to ask her to, to uh, do too much. But I wanted to have her uh, as a part of the movie. And so she agreed to do that. And over the summer of 2018, we were looking for our Alex Jones. It was originally written for a man. And what I got in return were really great Alex Jones impersonations. And they never really worked. Something about it didn't seem like it was um, honest or true to the world that they were going to be set into. It, it felt like this outside interference. Like, See, if, and, if only Bill Hicks was alive, you could have had Bill <laughs> Hicks as, as the character. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> or, oh, no, uh, wait, wait, I'm wrong. I'm wrong because actually Bill Hicks is, is Alex Jones. Yeah, he is alive. <laughs> uh, but no, you know, and it was like this thing where I was getting desperate. We were about three weeks before shooting and we didn't find it. And I reached out to her because she's very well connected. And I thought maybe she had eyes uh, on, on the community that I didn't. She gave me some suggestions, but uh, the best thing happened when I said, hey, I'm even open to this being a woman, if you can think of anybody. And then that's what like uh, opened her up to say, well, actually, I'd really like to audition for this. If you'd let me, I have an idea for this character. And I, I was thrilled that she wanted to spend that much more time with us. I was thrilled that she wanted to take on such an abhorrent character. And she sent me her audition and it was, it blew me away. It, it, and it, it caused me to rewrite the character top to bottom. And it was this missing element that um, really galvanized the whole movie. Like you said, she's kind of like exists, looms over the entire movie. And even when we were on set, uh, we were about three weeks into production. And when she showed up, it was this like incredibly electric moment where she starts diving into these monologues. You could feel the crew, everybody just kind of like, you know, tightened up and got really focused. And um, it was, uh, it, it was incredible to watch her perform. And then how it rendered out on the other side was uh, amazing as well. Like, you know, when, when we get into the editing and just seeing how powerful that performance is and it gave, uh, Tynus, the lead actor, uh, a really serious adversary, and I think lifted his performance and and built so much relevance into his character. So there's a lot to unpack there, but uh, you, you said you had to rewrite the character. W was there anything major that you rewrote about it, other than the the gender change? Or yeah, um, it was a different ending. Um, the, how, how it all wrapped up was different. Uh, obviously all the words and, and like the lines they were saying, I, I, I rewrote them for Lee's voice, uh, Lee Eddie, the actor. Um, and it just made, you know, cause the end of the movie, the, the third act is, is a pretty, um, pretty big swing to do that kind of a scene. And so you got to be really careful with every word that you use. And once I knew that it was Lee, somehow I was able to defend that character better on the paper. I was able to 
make their arguments seem more believable and not so like two dimensional or just there as a plot device. And all of a sudden I was giving her these extra lines and these extra monologues uh, sort of expressing the character's philosophy that I thought worked super well, because even as a leftist, uh, or, or if, if you if if you you know identify as a, a Democrat or liberal, you'll watch some of these speeches that she gives, and and really listen because she's making some pretty valid points, even though they're coming from a very uh, um, heinous place. What, what do you mean by valid points? I'm just curious. Well, just in the way that we uh, that we do everything in our power to try to divide each other and to try to turn each other into uh, just to two two sides and and then once we do that we look for these singular villains to go after and uh i don't think this is like uh, a hot take by any means but this notion that donald trump is the is the arbiter of like the downfall of our democracy is uh foolish you know if if all it took was taking donald trump out of the equation to fix what's going on with our our political uh ecosystem that would be easy but the reality is there's 75 million people that voted for him a second time after everything that had happened. And what she sort of puts forth as she becomes more and more in the hot seat as this movie kind of unfolds, she points out that like, it would be easy for you to just take me out, wouldn't it? It would be easy for you to blame this all on me, but it's actually you, all of you out there to blame. You know, I was gonna, I was gonna say, and I'm not giving anything away, but, uh, it's interesting the relationship between Duncan and Terry Lee. Uh, it reminded me of. Have you ever seen the movie Cosmopolis, the Cronenberg movie? Yeah, it yeah, reminds I me love of the relationship movie. between uh, Robert Pattinson and the Paul Giamatti character. And Paul Giamatti yeah. uh, is completely out of it in that movie, and you know the ending uh, of those two movies reminded me of each other. <laughs> Oh, cool, cool. Uh, I'll take that for sure. Uh, I love, I love that movie. It's kind of a sleeper of of Cronenberg's. A lot of people kind of, um, I, I don't think they they get into it too much because it is, it's, it's tedious, but it's pretty dense. There's a lot of really cool stuff going on. So then, with that Terry Lee character, another thing I wanted to note was, do you think in some ways Lee Eddie took it past just being? Um, you know, uh, uh, an Alex Jones type character, because in a way, while watching her, I was reminded of a more, I mean, in some ways, Alex Jones has become the mainstream now for uh, the American right, but she reminded me in some ways of like a, uh, a Glenn Beck or uh, a Tucker Carlson in that she doesn't speak the same exact way as Alex Jones. She's theatrical, but not in the same way as Alex Jones. There's a little bit more, she just seems a little bit slightly more reserved maybe than, than Jones at times. And it was also interesting to me because I, I think she's a, she's known for being a comedian and mm -hmm. she's actually playing a very sort of a, she plays the role pretty much straight and very serious. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, that's all her, you know, I mean, she came at this with sort of this hybrid of uh, Rachel Maddow and uh, uh, Laura Ingram. And uh, I'm really glad she did that because she approached the character as if uh, this person believes in what they are saying, whereas I don't think Alex Jones believes in what he's saying. Um, 
I think Alex Jones knows that what he's doing is is uh, psyops. It's all like uh, disinformation. Whereas uh, the the manner in which Lee brought life to this character was, uh, you know, through through this kind of truthful and honest belief in the in, in this the philosophy of the character. And so then what I think happens is is it renders out as this straight kind of. Uh, earnest character, albeit very loud and like like angry, uh, like Bill O'Reilly style or something. Um, it it's it's uh, I think it's cool. It makes it timeless, you know, in 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 a, in a weird way. That's interesting too that you say that. That uh, I mean, she does play the character straight, but uh, you said that uh, Lietti sort of wanted to portray the character as believing what she's saying. One of the things I like about this movie is I think there's a lot of ambiguities going on where, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, I'm not sure, so sure that I came away thinking uh, Terry Lee believes in all of this. Sure. Um, but I, I don't want to spoil anything, so we, we won't go there. But I, I found it interesting, even with the dynamic between Duncan and Terry Lee, you kind of leave a lot of question marks over is he like an obsessive fan of hers? Does he actually just really hate her and think she's ruined uh, his sort of patriot movement? Is that ambiguity there uh, intentionally or were there deleted scenes or what? what is the reason for that ambiguity? Yeah, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. There are, there are some deleted scenes that would maybe bring a little bit more clarity to that, but there's ambiguity across the whole board because the, the the idea was that I wanted to put you in the the position, you the viewer, in the position of having to decide what you think happened yourself in sort of this kind of Rashomon fast fashion, where you get to hear uh, the story from multiple sources and you're missing crucial bits of evidence and information. And by the end of it, you are sort of left with having to decide for yourself what was real, what wasn't. Uh, what was set up, what wasn't, what were the intentions. Um, and yeah, even in the case of Terry Lee, it's like, what does she believe? Like, what, uh, what is her angle? What is she trying to achieve when, when the, when the uh, uh, shit hits the fan, so to speak? So then I mentioned earlier that I, I don't think this is necessarily um, an anti-conspiracy movie. And I, I'm being provocative when I say that in a way, because <laughs> I mean, to me, I went away from the movie saying this is, I mean, and this is sort of how I've always viewed things like Pizzagate, QAnon, Alex Jones. Uh, to yeah. me, there is a, a sort of conspiracy. And I, I always tell people uh, often the conspiracy is the conspiracy theory itself. Um, as yeah. in, t- to me, the movie is, is a, a critique of um, different media ecosystems and how media works within a capitalist society. And in a way it operates or can seem to operate in a way that appears conspiratorial where, uh, you know, media figures act like vultures and actually Mm -hmm. may try to whip up people into a frenzy and create divisions while claiming, no, it's everyone else creating divisions. And in a way that's the real conspiracy. Exactly, exactly. And in, 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 in a real world manifestation of that, you know, a lot of the people who have uh, been kind of on the attack against this movie uh, are, are claiming that we made this movie intentionally to, to make it all look stupid and to kind of like throw off the scent of, of what's really happening with Pizzagate. 
And my answer to that and my ultimate answer or argument, I guess, not answer, but argument for this entire conspiracy theory issue that we're having is that we need to, we need to learn how to uh, discern again. We need to be able to walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. We need to be able to hear a crazy conspiracy theory and not immediately come up with our opinion of it just because it's the rules of our tribe. But, but based on the, the notion that like, they are conspiracy theories, the operative word being theory, it's not truth, you know, and, and you have to be, you have to atone for the fact that conspiracy theories are largely based in entertainment, and, and they're, they're kind of for fun and for fiction. And you have to atone to the fact that they have been used to expert degree in the past. Uh, much of what went on with Nazi Germany was uh, conspiratorial. Much of the bones of QAnon and this anti-Semitic sort of uh, uh, foundation to QAnon was built into the uh, the campaign that, that Goebbels ran and that, that Hitler ran in order to whip up all of this nationalistic sentiment uh, in, in Germany. So you you have to you have to hold a bunch of truths at once because that's life you know um whether well, i whether... was just gonna add real quick to that yeah. i mean the discernment thing's important because uh so I, I on and off over the past few years i've been covering the whole uh jeffrey epstein saga uh, even yeah. before he had passed away and to me that's like that seems like a very real um conspiracy and you know uh i agree I mean, it involves some of the same sort of uh, themes as these conspiracy theories like Pizzagate, you know, uh, particularly things like pedophilia and child abuse. So we need to discern between things that are very real, like Jeffrey Epstein and uh, Ghislaine Maxwell and things like Pizzagate and QAnon. Correct. And, and, that, and there, therein lies the self-sealing nature of conspiracy theories that are so potent is that they use enough elemental bits of reality that uh, they, they deceive you and trick you into thinking that if you disagree with the conspiracy theory writ large, that that means you disagree with every single element uh, within it. For instance, if I splashed a glass of water in your face and told you it was raining, you know, just because the elemental uh, physical feeling is still there that you have water on your face, you know, like you need to be able to discern that like, no, it's not raining. And just because I'm saying it's not raining doesn't mean that I, I don't have water on my face in the same way that, you know, just because I'm, I'm basically positing that I think Pizzagate and QAnon is false. Uh, it does not mean that I don't think things like what's going on with Jeffrey Epstein are also false or that there aren't elite uh, pedophilia operations and, and uh, organizations and, and events going on. That's not at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The thing that really upsets me about stuff like Pizzagate is that that in and of itself distracts you from the very real world underrepresented issue of human trafficking. The, uh, the amount of hours and time that people spend looking into these, this ever-changing narrative of these conspiracy theories, could you imagine what we could accomplish if we took that time and energy and put it towards something that is, uh, uh, got its feet on the ground and that is real issues and, and you know, even just donating to your local human trafficking agencies and stuff. I, I was going to say, I, I have an ex that uh, has worked with like uh, groups that try to address the issue of human trafficking. And it's funny, she said to me a while back that a lot of these groups now 
are getting aggravated because all these QAnon and, and Pizzagate people are coming to them and it's actually hurting their ability to operate uh, as groups that take on this very real issue of, of sex trafficking. Of course it does. I, I'm not surprised to hear that one bit. So then what's really interesting for me is uh, the way this movie has been uh, interpreted in a number of different ways. And I want to get to that, but first, just to lighten the mood uh, for a second, have you gotten anyone uh, that has said to you, obviously you are admitting that you're using this to make Pizzagate look fake and you're part of the conspiracy because you called the company behind it Illuminati Pictures. Yes. Yes. You have actually and, gotten that for real? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they'll they'll point that out and they say, like, we need to we need to look into Illuminati pictures and find out who's who's financing them. And they think that uh that our low budget movie with zero marketing spend uh is being financed by, you know, like the Democratic Party or the in fact the Illuminati itself. Um which is crazy. But uh, I did put it in there as part of the thematic kind of uh, tableau that's like on display with, with the whole movie, you know, is, is to kind of play into that, like multiple levels of reality, like the makers of the movie are, are maybe lizard people as well, you know, but yeah, that's, that's probably been the most consistent uh, conclusion that um, these true believers have come to is that we are this operation that's trying to throw off the scent and that we're trying to like make it look more like a joke or we're trying to throw off the uh uh the seo like search engine kind of uh stuff that if if you go and look for pizzagate our movie's going to come up and all the reviews of our movie is going to come up and it's it's going to prevent people uh future believers from finding the the truth now it's interesting to me what you said about um sort of implying that maybe we're the lizard people ourselves. Uh, so working in media, one thing that's really hard about this job, I think, is that, so for instance, I've, I've interviewed um, Billy Winner Davis, the, the mother of Reality Winner, who was recently mm -hmm. released from prison. She was involved with leaking those uh, documents uh, alleging Russian uh, interference in the uh, 2016 election, uh, the, the NSA documents. And uh, I, I think reality got really railroaded. Um, and I felt very bad for her family. But when I was interviewing her mother while reality was still in, in jail, uh, it was very hard to talk to her about it because at one point, um, you know, she, she got very upset when talking about reality's treatment compared to, uh, say, Paul Manafort. And yeah. I had to say to myself, like, oh, do, do I let her keep going? Or do I tell her, hey, do you, do you want to stop? And, you know, I did the latter, but I could see a lot of media people doing the opposite because, you know, they that reaction, you know, the, the emotion, the drama sells and, and it gets clicks. Mm -hmm. And um, it's interesting to me. I think that this isn't just an Alex Jones or a Tucker Carlson type issue. I even think, um, you know, ostensibly liberal or left media outlets can engage in this in their own way. In a way, I've often said that things like QAnon and PCGate gained steam because I think there were a lot of articles that came out about all of this, QAnon, PCGate, the alt-right, that didn't come out to say, oh, this is like a big threat when it was initially emerging, but sort of to say, 
hey, look at this, like, uh, you know, it was almost like a pornographic sort of comedy coverage saying, look at this freak show. And I think that actually helped proliferate Pizzagate and QAnon in some ways. And I'm not sure that the media outlets that sort of did the freak show coverage of these things intended that, but I, I think that was a, an unintended consequence. I don't know what you think of that, but that's sort of one thing that I've thought about how, you know, we can all contribute to the proliferation of these kinds of phenomena. Yes. Uh, and and just to kind of like speak to that in, in, a, in a more like everybody loves an underdog. And if you turn the leader uh, of a movement into the underdog, if you make them look like the clown and everybody's laughing at them, then you're, you're uh, triggering that sensibility of your followers to support the underdog. Because if you are a follower, you are the underdog to the person that you're following. And so the more that person gets turned into a, a, a clearer, sharper version of yourself, the more you see yourself in that person and the more you want to defend that person. It's kind of simplistically put, but I think uh, speaking to what your, your theory there, I, I, I think that, yes, the media's treatment of this uh, definitely played into the pro proliferation of it and, and like poured gas on the fire. I, I don't know the answer to what could have been done differently. Um, we can critique individual aspects of it, but I think, you know, being able to maybe see that honestly is, is, is a good first step that uh, the more we called them stupid or the more that we called them clowns, the more they dug their heels in. And people naturally do that. That's like one of the worst things you can do is tell somebody they're stupid. Uh, it's one of the worst feelings you can have is to feel like you're the stupidest person in the room. Um, very rarely uh, do, do we come into contact with our own humility in such a way that it's, you know, when people call me dumb, it's like, of course I'm dumb. You know, I went to public schools, you know, like, like you're dumb too. I, I think we're all dumb. Not, none of us are experts. So like, let's, let's try to come together and, and, uh, come to some consensus on a, a objective truth, you know, and we're in this era right now where everybody is too afraid to say that I don't know the answer and the, uh, being in the know and having done your research is as good as currency, you know? And so you see these arguments unfold on television or in these debates or online with like your crazy uncle and uh, some friend you went to high school with and it just turns into this pissing contest of who has what piece of intel that the other person doesn't have. And then all of a sudden that becomes the, the value as opposed to the very argument that, that started the whole thing. You know, and if everybody could just kind of start off from a point of humility, uh, then I, I think that would maybe make things go a little bit better. But, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not a social scientist. <laughs> so there's so many layers to this movie uh, and I, I don't know that we can unpack them all but with the element of media critique there's also an element of um, well I, I'll just put it this way uh, empathy is a big thing in this movie or you're trying mm -hmm. I think to say hey let's try to look through the eyes of a character like Duncan who's involved in a militia and who may have these right-wing views. And I, I found that very interesting because 
in a way, I think a lot of media outlets can't necessarily tackle that, um, you know, because I, I think a lot of our media is so based on getting those clicks that the whole uh, red versus blue tribe thing, you know, is, is amplified. And there's really no room to say, hey, let's just sit down and, and look at each other as human beings. Not, not, not that I'm like some kumbaya person, but it, you know what I mean. Uh, For sure. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it, it's, uh, it's because well, of the, real, go ahead. Real quick, I just wanted to say, what I was going to get at is I almost feel as if cinema can make us look at things from an angle that other media can't. Like, uh, you know, I, I don't think we can get this kind of analysis of the issue of Pizzagate or QAnon or any of this thing from uh, whether uh, a Rachel Maddow or a CNN or, you know, a, a TV talk show. I think you can only get it through uh, a movie that's saying, hey, look, let's look at this from the sort of empathy angle. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and I think that has to do with like the medium itself of narrative filmmaking uh, is uh, intrinsically like built on abstraction. The, the, the idea of artistic abstraction asks you like, like the relationship is that you are turning off reality for a moment and it's a safe space and uh, you're, you're going to uh, seat yourself next to these characters, knowing well that it, it's all tableau, it's all fake, um, and it's just it's just kind of an abstraction of something. But you can kind of achieve that high wire act of of uh, evoking empathy and and kind of pulling some sort of empathetic uh, string in in people who otherwise didn't know that they had that. And I think writ large, like like outside of our ability to watch movies. Uh, I think empathy uh, uh, is under attack. You know, I think the family unit is, um, for for a good reason, the family unit is breaking apart, but we're going to potentially lose out on one of the greatest gifts of the family unit, and that is of empathy, kind of like unadulterated empathy. Well, we're moving, then, in some ways, we're moving away from the nuclear family, but I'm not sure we're moving in the right direction of maybe more community or extended family or anything like that. I think we just keep moving more and more towards, and this is where I will come mm -hmm. off as, as Mr. Far Left Wing, we're, we're moving more and more towards atomization caused by an extremely individualistic and capitalist society. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that 100%. And we think that we're, we're a more progressive society, and by many uh, uh, perspectives we are, but I think that there is a tribalism that is being supercharged because now we can uh, monetize that 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 division. Uh, we can monetize that by uh, we see it in sports, you know, like buying buying your your team's jersey and stuff, and painting your face and going and screaming at other people. There's catharsis in that, and it's useful. But and, and I'm not saying that sports are are uh, part of the problem per se, but it's like you can see that. Uh, that dynamic playing out all across the board that we are uh, tribalizing ourselves online or tribalizing ourselves within the family unit um, or, or completely removing ourselves from the tribe of the family or community. Um, and I don't think that we are humble enough to that what's being taken away from us. So, or letting slip out, slip away from us, I should say. 
Another thing I find interesting is, so I have a, a few articles on uh, the Pizzagate massacre pulled up mm. right now. And the first one I have pulled up is uh, Duncan. And I, I guess this was a review from when it was still called Duncan. Duncan yeah. is a movie that asks you to pity the Pizzagator. I actually am not sure that I agree with that assessment. I don't think that you're asking us just to pity a character like Duncan. I, I think uh, pity implies not empathy, but ne- necessarily but sympathy. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with you on that. I think I think it's not so much pity, um, although there, you know, it's just like there's multiple feelings. It's not it's not uh, one one or the other. There there is a sadness about this uh, situation. Um, as much as I can get revved up and angry and want to go take to the streets during you know when, when we have protests and stuff, uh, there's also a great degree of sadness and, and pity that I have for them because I. Uh, they don't want to be doing that. Nobody wants to be uh, part of the problem. Uh, the you know they think that they think that they're not. They think they're the opposite. But it's um, you do just see this kind of really acute delusion occurring in otherwise uh, good people, and and it's it's um, you know without being needless or, you know w- w- without being like mean I guess about it. It's like I guess p- pity is kind of a mean word, but it's, it is pitiful. It's sad. You know? yeah, but I, I, at the same time, I don't think, I mean, maybe with the exception of, of uh, the character that you play, um, <laughs> I don't think, especially Duncan, I don't view Duncan as just being pathetic. I, I think there's multi, I think he's multifaceted. I agree. Yeah. And, and that's just it. It's like, we have to hold multiple truths at once. And Somehow there is some currency in social uh, social circles for not being multifaceted and not being nuanced. You know, a lot of the festivals that turned us down uh, didn't like that we were empathizing with these people. They wanted they wanted to just take in their own tribe, and they don't want to let anything else in to to uh, infiltrate the the thought. Uh, and the, and the thinking and the the narrative that they want their followers, they're the people that buy their tickets to believe in. Uh, we even had uh, one one piece of feedback we had from one of the bigger festivals here in Austin was, we can't show this movie. You made us empathize with this character, and we shouldn't empathize with this character. Do you think the other aspect of that is that, I mean, the movie is self-critical of how media treats all of this itself, and including... Yeah. Calling, you know, like you said, calling the company behind the movie Illuminati Pictures, there's this constant self-criticism of media, even right down to criticizing maybe the filmmakers themselves. Correct. Cause like that's something that I've that I've uh kind of kept really front and center with myself is that this question of am I doing exactly what the movie is uh uh indicting against you know or or, or kind of like trying to point out as a problem am i just part of this trying to uh profit off of the misery of these people uh i hope i'm not that's not my intention but um you know it is something i'm trying to be self-aware of and expressive of because i'm trying to as much as this movie kind of like almost feels like it's wanting to teach you a lesson uh i'm i'm trying not to do that because i'm I'm trying to make something it's ultimately not not to interrupt you but it's ultimately a genre film and i would i would say it's in the tradition of and i I hope you aren't offended by my use of 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 this word but 
to me, it, it is like one of those drive-in exploitation movies. It is oh, it yeah. has elements of that Roger Corman style to it. But what's really Absolutely. interesting to me, I always argue this with people, uh, you know, if you watch a lot of those old Roger Corman movies, uh, they have sort of social commentaries in them that are pretty radical for their time that you won't find in a lot yeah. of the mainstream movies of the time. So it's interesting that label of the the exploitation movie Often these movies can be very progressive, but at the same time, uh, they themselves are being made primarily for profit. Yes. And, and no, I take that as a compliment to be uh, anywhere near a comparison to like Roger Corman's uh, output. Uh, and, I, and I love that kind of cinema because of that very fact that you pointed out is that they are safe spaces to critique society oftentimes. And it's oftentimes, though, that scale of movie that's allowed to do it. And then there's also a reward for the people making it because I'm not in any position to just like write my movies and have somebody else build the castle that I'm going to go shoot the movie in. It's like I have to build everything brick by brick and I have to sit with it for years. So then it it, it puts this uh, this responsibility on my part. It's like I better do something that I care about. And so if I'm going to do something I care about, it's probably going to be somewhat socially uh, conscious, socially oriented uh, issues because I have to sit here uh, three and a half years later and talk with you and like be passionate about this, which I am. Uh, and and so you, it's that duality of like these types of movies have that runway to do that because you know it's small, very very low budget, um, it's niche audience. But then I have to be the one who's like here for every inch of it. You know, the, there there isn't like a uh, a team of people per se that are like doing all of all, all this work for me. So I have to care about it, you know? And, and if I have to, when I clock out from working on this and I have to go and watch the news about what's going on about, you know, uh, another police shooting or like some, some kid being killed or some uh, uh, monstrous racist event occurring, you know, it's like, it's infiltrating my every moment, whether I'm making a movie about it or not in these times. And so uh, I think that's where that comes from. And now a word from our sponsors. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this, Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. 
As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. So I hate to ask, but do, do you have a little bit of extra time? Because there were actually a few more things I wanted to talk about. Sure. Okay, sure. as Alex Jones would say, I guess we're going into overdrive. But um, <laughs> So you mentioned uh, it being low budget. It does not feel like a low budget movie. I don't know if you're, I'm not asking you to divulge like exactly how much it was made on. But I'm always interested in the process of how these films get made because it looks, I mean, so many movies that are called low budget today, and I talk to a lot of indie filmmakers, yeah. they don't feel low budget anymore. They feel very slickly made. Yeah. Well, and that that's just uh, the, the advent of how awesome this, this uh, inexpensive kind of digital cinema sort of world is that we live in. I mean, there's a lot you can do. I mean, I was able to edit on my personal computer. Right, the entire. I, movie. I always loved. Um, I don't know if you're a fan of Abel Ferrara. Uh, he he did King of New York and, and Bad Lieutenant. Um, yes, but... I I've seen, I I haven't seen those two movies, which is crazy because those are kind of his big ones. But there, there's a few of that I have seen, and I, and what I have seen, I do like. Did he make Did he make Driller Killer? Yes, he made Driller Killer, Miss Forty Five. He's the reason yeah. I went to film school uh, in part <laughs> because I saw Bad Lieutenant, and it blew my mind as a nice. you know a young lad. And uh, you know, it, it's interesting to me. Ferrara has said in the past, uh, what would you say to young filmmakers? He's like, get into digital, just get into digital. And it's interesting because I know a lot of people that are still like, I wish we could just go back to, you know, film and film stock. And I love the way that film stock looks, that grainy look. But with digital, you know, anyone can do it now. It's incredible what you can do with this technology. Correct. And uh, you know, to that point, we ran the numbers afterwards and we found out that our shooting ratio was so small that we probably could have afforded to shoot on 16 mil if we wanted to. Um, because that then like that is part of why I think the movie does look uh, bigger than it is. And it uh, kind of almost looks like it could be like a few million dollars um, is because like quite literally every single shot was planned out. Uh, we we would only shoot what we needed so that we could give all of that time back to the performers and the, the camera operators uh, to just execute uh, really, really well. And the whole story was written around that. The, everything about this production was designed to just excel when we had the gear going. You know, the gear was expensive, but it was very carefully mapped out. There wasn't uh, little, little to no, probably less than 1% of improv. Um, everything's just very mapped out and, and very carefully put together uh, because of that, because we want it to not feel like it's under, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's what's called like micro budget, right? Where you're under a quarter million dollars. Um, it, it falls into that realm, which is still like, that's an insane amount of money to me even. Um, but I think it's because I've just done low budget filmmaking my whole life. So that's how I've learned how to make movies so that when I go to write them or when I go to express something artistically, it is, it is imbued with that practical sensibility. I mean, almost every 
creative decision in this movie that people point out as like, oh, that's a cool choice. That's interesting because it means this for the character. There's oftentimes a secondary nature to it that provided this huge practical solution for us because we couldn't afford certain locations. That's really interesting to me. That's really interesting to me because I think I've heard John Carpenter say the same thing about his early films that oh, yeah. a, a lot of, I, I think he has said before that he, he likes working low budget films more than big budget films because mm-hmm. you have to be more creative with yeah. what you do in a low budget film. And in a way that can actually make the film better because, you know, with a big budget film, you can just be like, Oh, uh, let's just use this money to do this CGI effect and it doesn't necessarily look as good. Correct. Yeah. And there's, and there's, there's something about the medium of film that I think we ought not to lose the tactile nature of it. And you can see it sort of manifesting in that digital uh, film discussion. Right. And uh, we can kind of on the surface talk about just the visual aspect of, of it that like, I like the look of film versus I like the look of digital. Like that's, that's its own discussion. But then there's a practicality to it where you literally shoot differently when you have a film camera running. Uh, the actors will perform differently when they hear that film turning over in the gears. Uh, I've seen that happen. I've, I've experienced it myself when I shoot on film. There's a whole different nature to it. And even just the weight of the camera is different. When you're moving around a, a 50 to 100 pound hunk of metal, like giant camera rig with a huge piece of glass on it, you're going to shoot differently. The movie's going to feel different. You can only move so fast with that. But if you have a tiny little digital camera that you can like fit into the glove compartment of a car, a lot of filmmakers get distracted by that and they think, great, I can get that angle. But it's like you're, you're then getting that cool, unique angle at the cost of some of the most important uh, elements of the craft itself because the craft was built uh with the tools of like heavy metal tracks and heavy metal tripods and like big fat cameras and stuff you know that has that has a profound effect on what is rendered on the outside uh that you can't really see when you're just looking at an image um and so yeah like like low budget filmmaking uh is actually a, a really great thing to to cut your teeth on because we are getting into this era where it's like, it's pretty easy. You can shoot movies on your iPhone. You know, you really can. Uh, it's not easy, but you really can do that. And you, you should be cognizant of what is being lost in the process because all of your ideas are being pulled from those older versions of how to make movies, you know? Uh, this movie is very much imbued with like John Carpenter sentimentality and kind of love letter to him. You know, if I went and tried to make something that was using all these tools that he didn't have, uh, you'd quickly lose that spirit of what makes a John Carpenter movie kind of uh, uh, tick. If that makes sense. It's funny because uh, you mentioned how this movie sort of plays out like a Western. And if you watch enough John Carpenter movies, you start to realize Oh my God, this, this guy, he just watches like Howard Hawks Westerns all the time. You it's know, like, like, yeah, it's all he ever wanted Escape to do. Escape from New York. Escape yes. from New York is basically a Western transport into a post-apocalyptic world. Correct. Yeah. Uh, Assault on Precinct 13 is, he's even called it a, a spiritual remake of uh, Rio Bravo, I believe. Um, well, he, he even did one movie that I think you could say is 
explicitly a Western vampires. Vampires. I, I agree. I think vampires is definitely a Western. Uh, they live is, is, is very much a Western, you know? And, and I think a lot of American filmmakers have that in their bones because that, that is the, you know, the, I don't know what age you would call that, but like when the Westerns came about, it, it very much defined uh, American cinema. And uh, I think what we're seeing right now with like all the superhero movies, everybody's bemoaning them. Uh, and it's not as though the critique isn't warranted, but I think that all we're seeing is just a, the, the modern day Westerns. Cause there's a shitload of uh, Western movies. Like if I asked you right now, how many John Wayne movies you could, you could mention, you could probably maybe list off five to 10 on a good day, but there's probably like 50 titles that you've never even heard of. You know, the, the amount of Western films that were made during the era of like the 40s, 50s, and 60s is, is enormous, completely dwarfs what's going on with the superhero movies. And you know, so I'm a very lot of those excited. Westerns were made by, uh, in the 40s and whatnot, and, and before, they were made by these, uh, like, what were called Poverty Row Studios, like Republic Pictures on the back lots of Universal Studios in the, in the times when Universal wasn't filming. So, it, you know, Pizzagate Massacre, in a way, is sort of part of a tradition of westerns that are made on you know uh, low budgets correct yeah and the lighting is very noir-ish as, as, as well i mean it's 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 using all the tricks in the book you know because uh i don't know how to do it any other way because i've never had uh, uh disposable income to like just blow on a movie and, and go explore and just you know where you can only think about the vision or where you can only think about the art it's like i don't ever want to be in a position where i'm not shooting something and like worried that the piece of paper that I stuck on the wall to cover up a logo isn't going to just peel off midway through the take. You know, I want to have that outside sort of stress because that that's what kind of like keeps everything alive, I think. And, you know, to, to, to bluntly put it, it's like, that's sort of an excitement with live theater is that like, it's happening right then and there, you can hear the wood creaking and there is sort of an excitement of like, are they, is this going to go, you know, like, like it's flying without a net, you know, here we are, we're in the middle of a, of a show. Are they going to forget their lines? You know, I, I kind of like to have that on, on a set as well. Like I want to know that it's all being held together by duct tape and bubble gum. You know, it, it just keeps, it makes your decision-making. Uh, I think it, it anchors it to the craft as best as we can kind of define what the craft is, which is ever changing. So I have to admit, I probably could not name five to 10 John Wayne movies. I, I'm more of a, a Clint Eastwood guy, or actually sure. I, I'd go further than that. I'm more of like a just Italian spaghetti Western starring obscure uh, <laughs> people that no one remembers anymore, like Klaus Kinski and Lee Van Cleef. Although I, I guess yeah. some files like us remember them, but uh, yeah. you know, that leads me into something I wanted to ask you. You mentioned uh, the John Carpenter influence, and I can definitely see that especially yeah. with the soundtrack in some ways. Uh, but yeah. are there any other movies that have influenced your sort of filmmaking style and anything in particular that influenced the Pizzagate Massacre? Well, bringing it right back down to Westerns, it's uh, it, it, this movie is very much uh, a product of like uh, kind of a long-winded obsession I've had with Sam Peckinpah, uh, right down to some of the shooting style and kind of the this brutish, blunt kind of, uh, story movements and plot movements. It's, it's very, um, very much kind of taken from Peckinpah, you know? So, and, so and there is another leftist that is a fan of Peckinpah because it, it's Peckinpah yeah. is, is strange because he's such a great filmmaker, but I also find him incredibly reactionary, uh, with a lot of his films, like, um, 
uh, you know, the wild bunch and yep. uh, straw dogs. Although I think straw dogs ends up uh, taking on a different meaning if you, than, than I think what Peck and Paw intended. Uh, but I that's so. a whole nother discussion. Uh, mm -hmm. That's really interesting though, that you're influenced by Peck and Paw because I think he was uh, sort mm -hmm. of, like Don Siegel uh, of Dirty Harry fame, uh, yep. sort of within this milieu of directors uh, that were more reactionary. You know, uh, John Milius is another one. Although I, I think Peckinpah Peck is interesting too because he uh, wasn't a big fan of Nixon. He was apparently a big critic, but his mm -hmm. films uh, are kind of, I guess, problematic in some ways, but they're also uh, really great. So it's interesting to to hear you say that you're influenced by him because he's one of those directors that you have to struggle with in some ways. Agreed. Yeah, it's not it's not easy to get into some of them. There, there's easier ones than others, but like Straw Dogs is not an easy movie to get through. It's fun when you get to the ending, which is like the most brutal part, but like getting through there, it's like, it's pretty problematic. But that, that, that aside, uh, I just think objectively, he's a master filmmaker. What he's doing in the time that he did it was uh, unparalleled. Um, and, and how he kind of attacked the, the medium with, with quite a bit of ferocity and aggression um, and, and always kind of had something that was popping. There's, there's uh, writing techniques of his that I steal because I think he's like a phenomenal uh, screenwriter, you know? And so that, that sense of, uh, electricity and excitement that he has in his films, despite being in an era where like people were very much rewarded for making these kind of like heady dramas, he was finding a way to do that in uh, action films, you know, which I think is like a really good way to uh, express the medium. You know, I think drama is typically best on stage and uh, not to say that, you know, some of my favorite movies are dramas, but I think stuff like action films, genre films and horror films, you know, in particular, they really utilize the parameters of the medium uh, super well. And those genres then will influence you to exercise the medium as opposed to trying to like use the medium to say something else, you know? So it, 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 it all collapses in on itself like a Russian doll style. And so everything starts to like have lots of relevancy, like singular props can be really important to the story arc throughout the course of the movie. You know, because it's so it's physical, it's visual, and so it's uh, I've just really like admire those Western filmmakers because they are so beholden to what happens to the human body and the boots on the ground and uh, how fast you can draw a hunk of metal from your side. It's all very tactile and physical and and body oriented, which I think the 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 medium really expresses uh, super well. Since you mentioned straw dogs, and I have a way of, of taking this back to the Pizzagate massacre. Uh, what I've always found interesting about that movie is, you know, I feel like Peckinpah is saying, ah, oh, the new masculinity uh, sucks. Uh, but when I watch it, I'm like, well, the new masculinity is just as bad as the old masculinity. Dustin Hoffman's actually really just a psychopath in that movie, in my view. And Hoffman has said that's how he interpreted the character as a character coming yes. to realize his own psychopathy. And yeah. it's interesting because in watching that movie, I always tell pe people that movie wouldn't work without Susan George. Because I think the way Hoffman and Peckinpah interpreted that character, and they said this, I think Peckinpah said it in a Playboy interview. He said something along the lines of, she's not a woman. She's just a good piece of, you know, that's yeah. the word he used. Yeah. I don't think that Susan George 
portrayed the character that way. In fact, I think she's the most sympathetic character in the movie. Uh, because oh, yeah. for everything that she does in that movie, she's doing it because she's being treated like a trophy wife and she's completely neglected. I don't think that Peckinpah intended any of that. And I wanted to bring that back to the Pizzagate Massacre in so much as film is a collaborative effort. And that's something that Abel Ferrara has also talked about a lot, that he gives a lot of uh, leeway to his actors like Harvey Keitel and Christopher Walken and Asia Argento to sort of uh, craft the characters in the ways they want. How does that come out in the Pizzagate Massacre? I mean, we already talked about... Um, Lee Eddy sort of changing and morphing and, and helping evolve uh, the Terry Lee character. But was there anything that the other actors brought to the characters that maybe was different than the initial uh, script or screenplay? No, I, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it like changed the screenplay per se. Uh, or maybe the mood or any aspect the mood. of it. Yes, the mood and the tone and the, and the spirit of the movie is completely a result of the cast and crew that made it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a believer that, you know, you want to do your level best to prepare and get everything in order, get all your ducks in a row, but also be ready to completely give it over to your cast and crew when the cameras start rolling. Because you literally are, again, to bring it back to that physical aspect of the craft itself, moving things around, moving through space, how you, how you photograph something, you have to give that over to your cast and crew. And that's where it definitely becomes a collaborative effort. And that's where like a lot of really cool things can happen. That's, that's the whole point is that you want to assemble a group of people who are uh, in one way, shape or another aligned to create one big sort of like spirit of the movie. And it is their uh, output, not so much the directors, I don't think. Uh, you know, casting it is is a big part of it. Uh, and, and when I say casting, I mean the crew as well. Um, but then when you get to the day of production and, and the, in the subsequent days, your job, in my opinion, is to uh, create the, the smoothest runway for them to do the best work possible, while also being very uh, aware of the themes that we're trying to achieve so that everybody's on the same page. And, and it really does, the movie does become its own thing. And you have to listen really carefully to find out what is the movie wanting to become despite what I thought it was supposed to be. Because this is not the movie that I like set out to make. And that's a good thing. You know, I think it's better than what I set out to make. And I hope that that was because I got out of the way of uh, some really, really skilled technicians and really skilled actors. Um, and, and then staying consistent to that, especially in a feature where you have 90 minutes, 90 minutes, two hours, three hours, whatever it's, you gotta, you gotta make sure that that opening scene that you shoot on day 15 is the same as the ending scene that you shot on day one. And part of that, I think, is always keeping your eyes and, and heart open to what the movie is telling you it wants to be. And remembering that the people in front of you and the people around you and the camera, they're the ones making the movie. So like keep them coming to the table because everybody comes really excited on day one. But if it's a shit show, they start to change their work ethic. They start to change their output. Uh, when you, you know, we employed about a little over a hundred people on this movie. It's very easy for one of those people to start sabotaging if they feel uh, jilted in any way. So, you know, you want them to uh, remain passionate and energized, but also consistent. 
And the worst thing you can do is try to fight that because of some preconceived idea that you had when you were writing the script or, or like looking at the movies that you wanted to influence it. You know, I, I just, I, I've never made anything that turned out the way that I envisioned it. And I think that's just because that's, that's how the medium works. That's also you know? the beauty of the art form, right? You know, I agree. I agree. So uh, I'm, I'm not so up my own ass that I think that, you know, my vision is uh, better than what a hundred people are going to bring to the table on their best day. So there were just two more things. Uh, first, I was going to say, it's interesting how, as we've alluded to and sort of talked about, uh, the Pizzagate Massacre sort of has a twist. It, 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 it takes you in an unexpected direction with mm. uh, mood, how we think about the characters and all of that. And it, it in ways, it reminded me of uh, one of the few Kevin Smith movies I like. I know that I have a lot of listeners that love Kevin Smith movies. <laughs> I'm not the biggest fan. I never understood okay. Clerks. But I was always a big fan of Red State because I went into that movie mm -hmm. uh, expecting it to be like... Uh, I thought it was going to be like, okay, he's going to do a movie about Waco and it's going to be like saying, oh, they all deserved it. And he actually, while criticizing the religious right in that movie, also sort of criticizes the uh, ATF and whatnot, uh, especially in the, in the final scenes when John Goodman's uh, ATF character is being questioned. And I was really surprised by that. I thought it was uh, pretty nuanced. And that brings me around to uh, this whole issue of Waco, because Waco is another thing that actually looms, I think, within the movie in the same way as the pizza shop and the Terry Lee character. Mm -hmm. Why did you include that Waco element? And, and what were your general reasons for including Waco into it? Because I think people are still fascinated to this day by Waco. I mean, there, there was that uh, TV series recently with uh, Michael Shannon and Taylor Kitsch, I think, is, yeah. is David Koresh. So I think it still fascinates people to this day. Yeah, because it's it is definitely a very um, dense chapter in American fantasy, you know, and uh, there's a lot of elements that spur out from that and came before it that you, you can draw through lines to other like events of um, American extremism. You even pointed out earlier the Oklahoma that Oklahoma City bombing. I mean, McVeigh yeah. was influenced by that, but you were going to say I was pointing out earlier. With Alex Jones that, you know, he kind of got his start by being uh, inserting himself into that controversy around Waco. Um, and it was this kind of perfect collision of like uh, two entities, two tribes that meant well, um, but then maybe were seduced by the, the degree of their power and uh, succumbed to like, you know, these human fallacies of uh, seeking power and exultance in so far as, you know, you have the government coming in with their high-end weapons and they're going to they're going to take control of this situation and they're going to you know likely be the ones that set the place on fire uh versus David Koresh who his you know he's got all these wives and all these people worshiping him and he's refusing to back down because he believes what he's doing is correct and so it just it was a perfect um it was a perfect place in our movie you know, because I wanted to pull on as, as many like I wanted this to be like a conspiracy theorist fever dream where you're just drawing on all of these elements. Um, you know, there's there's elements of Ruby Ridge in there. There's elements of, uh, you know, all sorts of conspiracy theories. What, what elements of Ruby Ridge, by the way, because I've, I've actually covered Ruby Ridge on my show. Oh, just just in, in so far as like where this like shootout occurs, you know, like this kind of bunker house where like everybody's sort of like it all kind of 
cannibalizes itself, right? Because like the, 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 you know, thematically for me with Ruby Ridge that I think is so funny is that not funny, but just like this, like weird uh, kind of coincidence with it is that in their efforts to uh, get off the grid and in their effort to disappear and stay under the radar, they ultimately uh, conclude with having the entire world with cameras pointing at them, seeing right where they're at, and they're drawing all of this pressure in, and they're literally backed into the corner of their refuge being shot down. You know, there, there's a really interesting duality of that. And we talk about that in the movie with like Duncan thinking that he is like under the radar, you know, and that he can't be found. And it's like, no, you idiot. Like you're, you're, you're completely uh, exposed, you know, no, nobody, nobody can hide, you know, and there's, there's this, uh, you know, like this notion that, oh, if we're, if we're in our little bunker, we're going to be safe. And it's like, but therein lies that your downfall, you know, and that's like where it all kind of like collapses in on itself and all of these best laid plans kind of come un unraveled. Um, and so, but, but specifically with the Waco thing, you know, it came in, in with the researching Alex Jones, the timeline worked out perfectly. Um, and, and, and I like this idea that he is kind of, you know, uh, it's it's an element of of these characters. I think that they are people uh, that have had something taken away from them, and they have lost their guidance. And so, in the case of Duncan, it's you know you create this father figure that was taken away from him because of the father figure's uh, um, obsessions and their and their own fault uh, uh, faults. But then, outwardly speaking, it's the government that took him away from him, you know, so he has this distrust of the government, but really it's ultimately like his dad fucked up and now he doesn't have this father figure. So it's and like you a see great that with Karen too, where Karen has had something taken from her by actually Terry Lee takes her exactly. job from her. Yeah, exactly. Like a mother figure for her, you know, so it's, it's showing these people that have had things taken away from them. They're grieving and they want to blame somebody for it. They can't, they can't fathom the fact that no, that's just how life goes. And you got to, you know, pain is often uh, uh, impossible to eradicate and we have to learn to live with pain and we have to like live with suffering. Um, that's my like inner Catholic coming out, I suppose, uh, my, my, my Catholic torture trauma. My, my God, we have much in common. We both like exploitation movies, Roger Corman, and we're both, <laughs> both brought up Catholic. Um, <laughs> so there might be something to that. Um, um, go on. Yeah, that's, that's kind of where that comes from is that, is that the, the, these like, grieving people who can't just accept grief they have to have somebody to blame and i think that that has a reflection to conspiracy theorists because in in kind of a general way they can't fathom the idea that uh the government is kind of like you know just sort of this random chaotic events we're just, we're just trying to control it day to day they they want to believe that somebody is pulling the strings and that there is there is control and that there's an answer and the chaos in my own life uh could all be eradicated if i just figure out what's going on at the well, highest if we, if we just get rid of the one bad guy then you know everything will be fair and equal again when really the problems are more structural than that correct correct and and, and ultimately then reside in yourself and, 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 you know, they, they just don't want to accept that because that's kind of a bleak and scary reality to think that we're just, we are just a hunk of rock hurtling through space versus uh, we are this divine race that was, you know, brought down by Jesus Christ and, and God himself. And that, uh, you know, everything has a purpose and everything is like, 
you know, connected to the stars and stuff. The alternative to that is uh, frightening and very lonely uh, and cold. And it's unfortunate because then it, I think it I, I have to people. be honest. I, I kind of disagree with that. I find it kind of freeing that we're just on a rock hurling towards space. It means that I don't have the pressure of, of thinking, uh, oh, yeah. you know, there's this greater cosmic meaning, you know, like, yeah, what do exactly. I have to do with my life? Well, just chill. It's not that important. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And let's be nice. Let's be nice to each other. Cause it's like, after all, we, we are just kind of floating in space. It's like, let's just chill the fuck out, you know? And that's what kind of the beauty of a movie like independence day is it sort of, sort of, uh, fantasizes this notion that if we could all be made aware of the fact that we're just, uh, meat sacks on a, on a rock that maybe we would come together. But I think after what we've all witnessed over the past two years, uh, I, I think if aliens came down, I think we would see massive divisions and we would see uh, infighting and, and people trying to worship the aliens. You know, they kind of jokingly do that with like they're holding up the science and stuff. But I, I think it would result in a much more violent uh, outward uh, manifestation. Well, we, we've sort of had an alien invasion already scenario. I mean, we had COVID. We couldn't even come together on that. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's like it's we. we that was an easy one. That, that was a layup. And we, uh, we failed abysmally. So it's interesting since we mentioned Waco and Ruby Ridge. And I'm sorry I'm keeping you so long, but this conversation has fascinated me so much. Good, good. Yeah, that's all good, so man. With, with the actual massacre, and I, I'm not spoiling anything, I think due to probably budgetary constraints, but maybe also creative reasons, you don't show everything with regards to this massacre that happens. And in relation to Ruby Ridge and Waco, something that I think gets lost whenever media or people today look at Ruby Ridge and Waco is at the end of the day with Ruby Ridge, I mean, it, it's actually pretty tragic. I wouldn't want to live next to the Weavers, but, no. you know, a mother was shot holding her baby. She died. Right. Uh, a 12-year-old was shot after his dog was killed. Um, yep. And then with Waco, I mean, there were children burned alive. And they're all forgotten um, in a lot of the media analysis and the people that are fascinated by these subjects. And in a way, the fact that we don't necessarily see the massacre, I, I think that's another aspect of, uh, you know, it, it almost becomes a self-critique of, of how the media looks at these things where we forget the victims a lot of times because we're so fascinated by the other aspects. And I'm, I'm not sure that was an intentional thing in the movie. Maybe it was a budgetary thing, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that um, or bounce off what you think of that. It's both. It's both. It's uh, it's a practical uh, solution because yeah, there's only so much we can do with a pizza place on a shoestring budget in the middle of the night with uh, a really complicated action sequence. Um, but also thematically it works because Again, I want you to come out of this movie being like, oh, I was kind of, I got uh, radicalized there for a second. I thought I knew what was going on, even though I didn't have the evidence. You know, it forces you to kind of decide who do you want to believe as, as far as what really went down inside of the pizza place. It forces you to kind of make some giant assumptions based on who is it that you, that you think is part of your tribe. Is it Philip? Is it Duncan? Is it Karen? Um, is it the news? Is it Terry Lee? You know, like who, who is it as the viewer that you kind of trust? And all of those characters over the course of the movie uh, uh, prove themselves to be quite human and that they are uh, susceptible to 
uh, poor decision making, and they're susceptible to dishonesty. Well, they're, so, they're susceptible to. I mean, we're, we're. I think every character, and and I especially think this comes out with Karen at the end when we sort of see what her final intentions were. You know, we see a lot of good in her throughout the movie, but we also see a monstrous side come out in a way. So there's mm -hmm. the saint and sinner dichotomy. You know, uh, we contain multitudes. We contain both gods and monsters. Correct. Correct. And that's and that's hopefully comes across as a a, a way to say that uh, we are much closer to these monsters than we think we are, and to think that our neighbors or our family members who we share the same roof with for 18 years of our life are uh, anything but just a carbon copy of us is foolish. And it's a fantasy to think that they are this like deplorable, uh, um, bizarre evolution of, of humanity that we need to like wall off, you know? I, I think there's plenty of people on the left that would have liked to see a wall built between us and them. And uh, it's just not the case, uh, you know, and, and I think that's a good thing because we need them. We, we can't, we, we, we need to exist together and we need to find a way to empathize and understand each other's pain and understand that we're all hurting and that we're not the one, like we aren't making Republicans lives, uh, miserable and Republicans aren't the ones making our lives miserable. This is a very good segue into something that I almost forgot to mention since you mentioned deplorables and also uh, <laughs> kind of not seeing uh, that we're all human here. There was a movie that came out a while back and I know you were counseled on some of the experiences you would face with this movie by some of the people involved in this other movie. I'm talking about the movie The Hunt, which yeah. was basically, it's weird because people talk about cancel culture. That movie got canceled by the yes, sort of Trump contingent. Um, and for people that don't know, it's it's a movie about um, elite liberals hunting down deplorables. And what's interesting about the movie is, I don't think the movie is, uh, it wasn't as much of an attack on anyone as uh, I think uh, the Trumpists thought. And maybe you could talk about the hunt and also, uh, I think you had an experience with one of the people involved with that movie. Yeah, so uh, the woman who played Terry Lee, her husband was an actor in that movie, and uh, they experienced a pretty good degree of um, backlash for being attached to that movie from uh, right-wing online uh, trolls and bullies and uh, aggressors. And so, yeah, about last year- I think they missed year, the point of the movie then, but go on. Of course they did, and they probably didn't even see it. You know, that's the funny thing about these death threats that I've been getting. They all occurred before the movie was even available to be seen, you know, and, and all of the accusations that were uh, thrown at me all occurred before anybody had even seen the movie, which is so emblematic of what it is that they're doing. They don't even believe, they can't believe uh, what they are, what they are uh, getting behind because they don't have the evidence. I know firsthand because the evidence is sitting right on my computer uh, for, for this whole time. But um, yeah, you know, she reached out to me and, and just kind of said like, yeah, these things happen. And here's sort of what happened with our experience, because I knew that stuff was coming. Uh, but when it happens, it's a little chilling. Um, and then ultimately, you kind of experience it, go through it and just kind of keep it with you and hold it and uh, contextualize it. And I think that, uh, first of all, if your movement is so shallow that it can be taken down by a poor filmmaker on a micro budget uh, scale, uh, then maybe your movement was never 
alive to begin with. Um, and, and secondly, uh, like I said, I just don't think they truly fathom what it is that they are getting behind and they don't believe it. Therefore, I don't feel as though they're going to be compelled to come try to uh, find little old me, you know, while I'm worrying about my, you know, uh, whether or not I'm going to make rent this month or not. You know, I, I assure you, the uh, uh, the democratic elite Illuminati deep state is not funding me. And if they offered to, I would gladly take the money and because uh, uh, I'm fucking poor. Um, so it's it, it's just a silly thing that I think will ultimately evaporate because the thing that's not going to go away for these people is their pain. What will go away is the narrative of Pizzagate and QAnon. You know, that, that th this will recess into history, but their pain will remain. And uh, somebody else will come and, and pick up the ashes and the bones of the old conspiracy theories and rebuild them for a new. Um, and, and then that pain will be uh, kind of exercised once again. So uh, that was kind of like part of the, the lesson that I got from this cast member uh, of the movie that, that really did help quite a bit. So with the death threats, how did, how did that happen? Because you said, I mean, I, I think we may have interacted on Twitter or whoever runs the, oh, yeah. the Pizzagate movie Twitter. Uh, I, I had said, I think the people who gave death threats to this movie uh, missed the point or never even saw it. And I think the Twitter Pizzagate massacre page responded with, this was before the movie was even completed. So I was wondering if you, how did these people know you were making this movie? How did they find you? And what were these death threats like? Yeah, they, they they would they would show up on like comment sections. I would get some emails every now and then through like the the Pizzagate social media platforms and stuff, um, you know. And I just report all of them and I screenshot all of them and I and I delete the really grisly ones just so as not to like, you know, put any more of a spotlight on that stuff. But you know, it it ranged from you know really specific uh, thing. <laughs> Somebody you know said said that they were going to curb stomp me. Uh, and then what is then, this American history X? I know. Right. Which is interesting. After you see the movie, um, the, the American history X contingency of the movie, but a lot of it then would turn into this more like biblical kind of prophesizing where, you know, ye shall see like, like you, you, you will see the, the, the nightmare that you have wrought and like this kind of, uh, sort of patchwork philosophy of, 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 uh, doom and gloom threats, um, I tried to keep some of that stuff up because I, I think that 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 is in service of the project. Uh, so but, but and, and no like one, I said, like, tried you to know, like, find it, where you live and all that stuff, right? Not yet. Not that I know of. You know, I think if that happened, if I started getting doxxed, that would be a different story. I would probably turn up the heat on my end a little bit. But uh, that's just it. You know, it, it, it's it lives and dies in these comment sections and public forums and stuff, because I think these people want attention. They want to be seen because they're trying to feed some sense of an identity and they're not going to get it from me and they're not going to get it from taking down a little movie um, because well, in a everything... way, if it wasn't for them, I, I'm not sure the movie would uh, have gone forward the way it has. Absolutely not. Uh, like I said, the movie was dead in the water. Uh, we, we tried to submit it to festivals. Nobody wanted it. And I was ready to release it on my own and just be done with it. Um, and then when we put the trailer out, a QAnon follower, uh, ripped the trailer from YouTube, posted it on their own channel and it went viral overnight. And the whole notion was let's take these fuckers down because they're trying to silence us. They're trying to make a joke out of our movement. And what that did was, uh, 
uh, put a giant spotlight on my movie. And then the next morning I had emails from Vice and the Daily Beast and Gizmodo and all these media outlets uh, reaching out to me after having emailed literally hundreds of media outlets to get coverage on this movie and never got a single response back. But then all of a sudden- Do you have an idea that would happen? Because like when you post a trailer, are you thinking to yourself, I wonder what the algorithms will do and maybe a lot of these QAnon people will find this. That That's exactly what happened. So like I, in self-releasing, I kind of put myself through a little education on uh, um, social media and like self-releasing a movie and like YouTube uh, ad campaigns and stuff. And so I packed this trailer with all of the correct hashtags, all of the correct uh, SEO elements. And when I put it online, I left it public because I wanted to see what the organic traffic was uh, of QAnon. And I sure found out because like I, I posted it on a Thursday night. Um, and then when I woke up Friday morning, I had all of this like heat and all of these followers just flying, like, just like, you know, we went from having, I think it was less than 2000 followers on, on Facebook to uh, 15,000 at one point. And then we lost some, um, but it's, it's, it's like coasting around like 13 or 14,000 right now, which is a lot for an independent film. And it's all because of these uh, true believers putting attention on us. So if anybody wanted to actually follow through with one of these threats, I think that would be a big fucking mistake uh, for their movement. Uh, I, I think it would put the movie on a map in a really profound way because it would in fact affirm the very thing that I am uh, kind of uh, laying out in the movie itself. You know, th- these death threats are very Duncan-esque, you know? So it, it all just affirms and kind of emboldens the decision of why, like, why I thought this was an important story to tell versus something else. You know, uh, it, it, it affirms that, yes, these people truly exist uh, to the tune of millions. So the very last thing I wanted to touch on was the title change. Uh, so yeah. it goes from Duncan to the Pizzagate Massacre. I actually prefer the title the Pizzagate Massacre, just because, like I said, the way I looked at the movie was, I I think it's very self-reflexive. And I I, I, I was in sociology, so self-reflexivity is very important to me. And, um, you know, I I think that the Pizzagate Massacre, that title sort of has this uh, sensationalistic um, exploitive bent to it that lends itself to how the movie sort of self-critiques sensationalism and tabloidism in media uh in a way it reminded me of this is probably not the example people want to hear but uh it reminded me of some things that i think uh regaro diodato did with the very controversial cannibal holocaust because as horrifying yeah. as that movie is to watch there is a sort of self-critique of filmmakers themselves in that movie i mean uh because the the documentarians in it are portrayed as you know being just vulturous. Yes. And I think that that title, The Pizzagate Massacre, really works uh, with a sort of self-critique of how we operate in the media and as, you know, people in general with how we can be exploitative when we get fascinated by these morbid subjects. Uh, so I was wondering if you could comment on that and also uh, why the original title, Duncan? Just because the movie was very much about Duncan, it wasn't about trying to uh, tell some sort of like historical reenactment of Pizzagate. It, it, the movie, like I said, it's it's fictional. 
you know, it's inspired by this uh, conspiracy theory. So that was, I think, a, a effort on my part to really nail that, that like, this movie is about this man and this character, not about Pizzagate, uh, not about QAnon. And so that served really well during the making of it, because I think it, it galvanized the cast and crew into remembering that this is about this character. Now, when the movie kind of dies on the vine and all of a sudden we're rescued by horror film fans and horror film festivals, uh, and then we ultimately get acquired by a genre uh, distributor, like a genre label, um, we want to serve that audience that that found the movie. And part of that is uh, giving it more of a, a horror-laden title. But it works also thematically in that that's kind of the big question that the movie was based on was what if Pizzagate would have went the wrong way? You know, we would have been referring to it as the Pizzagate Massacre. Um, there's kind of a fun little tie into the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because uh, I'm, a, you know, adore that movie. It's my favorite horror film, you know, shot in Austin. It's based on very, very loosely based on a real uh, crime. And uh, so it kind of has that like Texas Chainsaw well, it's, Massacre. It's also vibe. interesting too, because people forget this, but the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, if you watch it closely and it, it's reflected in, that movie had a title change too. It's originally going to be called Head Cheese. I mean, Toby, That's right. Hooper, Toby Hooper made that as a very, very dark comedy. And there are these satirical yep. elements in it. And there's even, I think, commentary on the sort of, era that it was made in you know the loss of jobs watergate was happening it's very much uh, a film of its time and it's commenting on a lot of things of its time yes yeah and and it's it's there's so much about that that inspired the making of this movie so i thought it was appropriate to uh attach it to that movie you know and it also doesn't hurt that the the remake is coming out in february of next year so it's like you know being kind of alongside that movie as it's coming out is 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 really cool um in in just th that minor tiny way that it's like kind of winking at that title i i just thought of it as well uh since you mentioned that there's really four characters that you can really get invested in um mm. you know the philip your character uh duncan um karen and uh terry lee and uh, I i'm curious uh who do you identify the most with and with regards to the feedback for the film, have you gotten feedback on who viewers identify the most with? And I, I'll be honest here and say, for some reason, I, I really identified with Duncan and I didn't think he was uh, necessarily a, a monstrous character or they, I, I got the impression that he didn't want things to go in the direction they went. Uh, so I kind of uh, felt a lot of empathy for him and identified with him a lot for some odd reason. I don't think I fully understand yet, but uh yeah, I'm curious, who did you identify with? And have you gotten feedback from viewers on who they identified with? That's an interesting question. I, I haven't gotten uh, any definitive feedback on who who's whose favorite character or who who identifies with who. Uh, I suppose maybe that will reveal itself uh, as the movie's been out for a little bit longer. But, you know, for me, it's it's yeah, no surprise. I, I, I would say I probably identify the most with Duncan. You know, I think that's why he did become the main the main character um and the characters i'm glad you didn't say philip that that would have worried me because i know you played <laughs> <Right>. philip but <laughs> yes yes you know and they're all just kind of supposed to serve as like uh versions of some singular character of the movie itself you know they're they're different versions of of each other they're 
versions of people who they want to become or people who they don't want to become that maybe they accidentally do become. So it's all kind of like a, a, a mixed bag there. They're, they're all sort of extensions of Duncan. That's how the casting went. Like I said, you know, it's like the, the characters were cast in the wake of what Tynus was bringing to the table, um, the actor who played Duncan. So, you know, I think, I think that's who I would identify with the most because I'm, I'm confused. I'm, I'm confused about what's going on and I'm confused about the world that I was raised in and what I was told uh, this country was all about versus what I'm seeing it. Uh, turning into or not even turning into it's not it's not that like i think oh this country's going to hell in a handbasket it's like no i think it always was uh what it is and i think that we just do a really good job of telling ourselves a different story we certainly tell that story to children that of, of america's exceptionalism and that's not the case um and that's something that we should atone to and reconcile with and and embrace and just be okay with and call it what it is uh, I don't think it's like anti-American to say that uh, America kind of fucking sucks. Uh, and I think we should do better. Um, and in, in an odd way, I, I always tell people that in some ways, the truly patriotic uh, response of, and I would, I would even say, you know, I've often said to people, uh, you know, if you're really conservative, you would want society to be sort of stable. And sometimes the only way you can get stability is by addressing uh, past historical grievances of people in your society and also uh, atoning for those historical grievances and making reforms. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to have anything to do with it. In fact, they want to rewrite what happened. They want us to think that, no, 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 those photos and those videos and those like really well-researched lessons that you learned for 18 years of your life um, those, those didn't happen, you know, uh, it's this other thing, you know, we're constantly trying to like rewrite what's going on. Um, so, and it's confusing and I, by no means think I have any answers. Uh, so in that facet, I do, I do relate to Duncan. I relate to Karen in that facet, you know, I think people like Terry Lee or Philip are pretty sure of themselves, uh, um, to, to their demise, you know? Uh, one way or another. And, you know, I, I think there's like a humility about Duncan that we hopefully see a little bit throughout the course of the movie that is, is I think, of value. Uh, what do you identify, just out of curiosity, what do you identify most with when it comes to uh, Karen? Because for me, by the end of the movie, and I'm not spoiling anything, I, I'll put it this way. I was really mad at her in that final scene, because I just thought, uh, you know, I, I have an issue with people that sort of give in to, uh, you know, the vice of greed or uh, avarice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I identify with her, with her altruism. I identify with her, with this notion that uh, media and film can uh, shine a light on things and, and sort of like exercise uh, inequities. Um, and it's by and large a fantasy, uh, unfortunately. That's that's interesting because I, by the end, I didn't. I felt that what she did at the end wasn't altruistic, but maybe maybe I'm viewing it from a perspective of, of another character. So that that's what's interesting about this film. I think there's multiple ways to look at it, and I do think there are altruistic yeah. aspects to her. She does sort of want to shine a light on things, 
it, it's a very multi-layered film. I, I again, I was very surprised by it. Well, good, good. Uh, I, I hope it is. I hope it's deep because it's um, you know it's I I respect the hell out of people's time and 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 their their willingness to watch a movie like this or or to like you know in this world that we live in this kind of like hyper uh, you know content world that we live in it's like to ask somebody to sit down for 90 minutes is kind of a big ask so i hope it's layered and i hope that it has you know that it's thought-provoking and kind of like gives somebody something beyond just a a 90 minute uh break well also i i'm assuming it was a labor of love for you because i i'm assuming you had to put up your own money for it i did yeah the uh the fundraising did not go well um despite having a really solid crew lined up and, and uh, what I thought to be a pretty tight script and a long history of consistent uh, good work. Uh, we couldn't raise anything really. You know, we, we, we got a few hundred dollars from our, um, our crowdfunding uh, campaign, uh, but we couldn't get any producers to work with us to find money. Um, so I ended up paying for this with uh, settlement money that I got from a pretty grisly car accident a few years ago uh, that was supposed to be for a surgery because I have kind of a bionic arm. And um, and you were so, like, it's now or never. It's now or never. You get too far down the road. And it's one of those things where uh, creative communities uh, sort of rise and fall in like bubbles. And I knew that we were on the cusp of a big bubble popping in Austin. And uh, lo and behold, all of these people that I've worked with, all of the, the cast and crew, they have definitely graduated beyond where I could afford to work with them now uh, without having a substantial amount of more money. And so I knew that I had them behind me and that they were really good at what they did. So I, I knew that this was going to be uh, money well spent. Um, now the verdict is out on whether this movie ends up being like ultimately financially successful. Um, but I think we did make something pretty cool. I think the gamble worked and uh, I think everybody's very proud to have been a part of it. Well, the, the note I'll, I'll leave on is uh, it's interesting since we were just discussing how there's different perspectives that we can take from the, the different characters. Uh, you know, I may have to rewatch this, multiple times now because uh you know in in some ways i was sure of how i viewed some of the characters and in having this conversation now i'm thinking hmm, maybe i need to look at that character in (laughs) a different light or maybe you know the way they're telling the story is the truth and the way that i thought the other character was telling the story maybe they weren't as truthful so i I think this is a very rewatchable movie and i want to thank you for going two hours with me, which is longer than the length of the movie itself. <laughs> but uh, this movie truly, truly impressed me. And I've seen a lot of indie films. I promote a lot of indie films on this show. Uh, this one hit it out of the park. And uh, that's why I went so long with this episode. So I thank you for your time. And I want to give you a chance to let my listeners know how they can keep up with your work and also how they can get the Pizzagate Massacre. Yeah, um, you know, you can keep up with me. I'm, I'm very uh, present on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, John Valley, or at John M. Valley, M as in Michael, my uh, middle name. Um, pretty easy to find me. I love interacting with people. I love chatting with folks like yourself. Um, 
I, you know, a lot of what I do is kind of spent by myself and and being unsure of whether what I'm doing is is landing with people. And so it means the world to me and really, really warms the heart that uh, people are responding this well to the movie. Um, and the movie itself is available on virtually all the uh, VOD platforms. That's stuff like Amazon Prime, uh, iTunes, Apple TV, uh, Vudu, YouTube, Google Play. Um, and depending on how well it does during this phase will ultimately uh, determine where it goes afterwards. Cause you know, it's only going to be available for a moment here. Um, if we do well on sales, then it might end up on Amazon prime for free. If you're, if you subscribe there. Um, but right now it's like five, I think it's like four ninety nine to rent and it's nine ninety nine to purchase. So it's pretty cheap. Who's the um, distributor by the way. Our, our uh, we have two distributors. It's Archstone entertainment and Raven banner entertainment. Um, they're, they're both kind of tool around with genre films and stuff. Uh, so they're the ones who got it out there for us. Um, been fun to work with, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to get another one made through them. They seem to be pretty excited about what I'm, what I'm brewing up next, which is uh, a handful of horror projects. Cause I'm just tickled that, uh, this audience that accepted my work was my favorite audience, horror fans. Um, so I kind of want to give back and I want to have some fun and shoot some cool horror films. Anything uh, in particular that you can talk about or I'm kind of working on something right now. That's like a body horror, uh, sort of project uh, in the vein of Cronenberg, um, and, uh, technology and media stuff. It, it is, it's by no means a sequel or spiritual sequel to Pizzagate massacre, but I think it'll, uh, fit in well with that kind of world that I'm building, um, and it's saving me time on research because I'm able to pull a lot of the research I did from the last movie and kind of exercise some more elements of it for this next movie. Um, and depending on how well Pizzagate does, will wildly determine uh, the, the the eventual life of this next project if it does have one. Would so. you ever be willing to uh, revisit the Pizzagate Massacre with like a, a prequel or uh, a sequel dealing with one of the other characters? Totally. Yeah. I'm not beyond that at all. I think that would be really fun. And again, I, I just, I love, I love the audience. And so if there was a demand for that, I would absolutely do that. I have all sorts of ideas of like ways that you could do uh, spinoff stories or continue these stories, uh, prequels, sequels, you know, it's, you know, when you make these things, you, you suss out a lot of versions of the movie while you're while you're uh, cobbling it together and writing it down, and you only end up with one version of the movie. So uh, I would have no problem revisiting this world or these characters. I think it'd be a lot of fun, and there's there's certainly more to say with them. Um, and hopefully, that's a sign of a good movie. That if if you're watching it, you, you you could maybe see yourself wanting more and to spend more time with these people. Thank you again, John M. Valley, and I hope everyone checks out the Pizzagate Massacre. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I know that was a whopper monster-sized edition of the program, but I hope you enjoyed it. And be sure to check out John M. Valley's The Pizzagate Massacre, now available on a number of different streaming services. Also, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's everything from a 
$1 tier to $100 tier, with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. And of course, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shoutout. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Fabian, and Colin. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, well then, consider joining those listeners and supporting me at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And I should note, if there's anyone out there looking for an advertising opportunity, I have a space that is open to promote your product or service in the show's intro. Email me at parallaxviewspod at protonmail.com if you're interested. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.